Welcome everyone to Fresh Principles Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the state of wind and solar energy in the Canadian and the U.S. grid. So we're going to be kind of continuing off the, the same train of thought that we've continued with some of our previous episodes, looking at energy, looking at renewable energy, renewable power, how that mixes in to the current conversation, the current state of things. And uh, more specifically, we're going to look at some calculations. We're going to actually look at some simple back-of-the-envelope calculations we can do with assessing how solar power and how wind power can fit into the Canadian and the U.S. electrical grid. So the idea from this came from um, one of my previous episodes, and uh, w- w- uh, and the whole notion was kind of put forward or is being put forward by the current talks of having a fully renewable energy grid so what does that mean well it means that you're going to have essentially solar power wind power as the bulk of your energy uh, input and perhaps if you have access to geothermal if you have access to um, other forms of uh, renewable energy such as hydroelectric those are good too but for some reason solar power and wind seem to always get the headlines i don't know why yeah well yeah what's your take on that Elia? what's uh i think that solar and wind seem to be this the glorified version of renewables although we'll get into this they make up a small fraction of current power uh, generation Mm -hmm. in a lot of places and hydropower is a lot bigger but Mm -hmm. it seems like there's a lot of talk about what the potential of wind and solar Mm -hmm. uh or what what its potential is so we're focusing in on that but it it, by no means wind and solar are the only renewable options out there Mm -hmm. but they are the biggest growing and the ones that people see the greatest promise in as the technology seems to be getting better yeah and uh, i don't know why that's the the case maybe hydroelectric power has already been really extensively developed for the last little while so they don't want to go down that line because also there are several environmental issues associated with hydroelectric power, such as all the, um, the potential eutrophication of the water, you know, algal buildup, then all the upstream effects, downstream effects, you know, the environmental effects. And I think a lot of environmentalists are trying to maybe move away from hydroelectric power as well. What do you think about that, too? It's... It's possible. Yeah, I think it's because hydroelectric has been used for so long, the uh, state of it is um, well known or better Mm -hmm. known than the others. Mm -hmm. And I know there are some valid criticisms around hydroelectric, um, but uh, the hydroelectric is also limiting because you have to have a water body uh, that you can put the hydroelectric dam on Mm -hmm. that works right Access. whereas sol- yeah. solar and wind y- you have more flexibility in where you can place them a little bit more uh so right. i think that's maybe why they're why people are more interested in them because there's more potential to put them where where they need them um although of course they have limitations where they can go as well uh, wind and solar but uh if you, you'll see that uh, countries or provinces or um, states that have uh you know the geology and the hydrogeology to accommodate hydroelectric tend to utilize that but there's other places that have low hydro use that's because they just don't can't they don't have the streams and water bodies to 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 utilize it correctly in some cases 
Yeah, and I think that's a that's a great point, which I think is a great theme to just maybe introduce at this point, which is that with the diverse geology and geography that each country faces, the energy solution that fits in terms of the optimum solution for that country in terms of how they get their power is going to be different right because some places are going to have access to more uh, desert type of climate where you're going to have lots of sun other places that you're going to have more uh, water courses streams rivers to access hydroelectric power Mm -hmm. and we have to take these things into consideration when talking about such complex issues because we have to just understand that it's not going to be a cookie cutter, one size fits all solution. So just to keep that theme in mind when sometimes these things are really simplified, which again, it's like, why are we focusing on solar and wind? Well, part of it maybe is just a simplification as well so that people can just focus on those, I guess, pinup boys or like the the ones that are the, the facade or like the uh, at the front pages of what people want to think about. But in reality, there's a lot, a lot more depth going on here. But um, yeah. the question did arise that how much, you know, if we were to think about the, the power consumption in Canada, or the power consumption in the U.S. or any country, how much area would be covered if that power was generated by solar, right? So a solar power generation facility, not just solar on your houses, but for us, we we did kind of cover both, but we're going to focus on the solar power generation facility. Yeah, industrial scale. Industrial scale. Thank you, Elliot. And on top of that, what will be the footprint for a wind power plant, right? So if you were to supplement all the power ne- necessary to power you know, Canada's demand, the, the, the capacity, and you were to do that with a wind farm, what would be the footprint of that wind generation power plant? So um, any thoughts on that before we jump to the calculations there, Elliot? All I would say is going back to your point there that mm-hmm. it is a core, let's call it principle, you know, mm-hmm. fits with the podcast here, right. um, that s- the best solutions are tailored solutions for mm-hmm. the environment um, that you're, you're, you're trying to tailor to. So mm-hmm. um, w- what we're about to do is do a broad um, explanation of how if you just focused on one type of renewable wind just one type of renewable solar what would that look like if you're trying to meet all our demands it's not what we're advocating but it's it's a very what by going through these numbers it will it gives us a, a clearer idea of how we can uh, uh implement this in other places like what it gives us a, a conceptualization of what the capabilities of this technology are and that's why we're doing this Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a simple rough calculation mm-hmm. to give us some boundary conditions, some uh, generalized uh, ballpark figures, right? This is, there's no exact exactitudes here, but just ballpark figures, as they say, which is pretty common. So, yeah, let's jump into it. So when we look at um, a wind power footprint, right, one thing that we found was that uh, on average, what you're going to find is that for one megawatt of power, capacity you are going to need one acre of surface area and maybe it's a good time to talk about the difference between power and energy and uh, power is just energy over time so power is just a rate essentially uh, whereas energy is just the actual energy itself so we we, you, we could look at the energy consumption uh, 
right? So in terms of how much raw energy is consumed in a year, or you could look at the power capacity, which means the power which is required at any given point, at any instantaneous point in time to sufficiently power the demand of Canada or the demand of US, the demand of a specific city, right? You need the capacity. You need to be able to meet the demand. And that is done with an analysis as pow- with power as your baseline. And, yeah. And I, can I just jump mm-hmm. in there? Yeah. That's super important because it, it's not that at in the middle of the night, we need, you know, X number of, of amount of energy. It's your power demands in a city go up and down and there's peaks and valleys right but you have to have a system that can meet those peaks so you got to design for the peaks and growth from those peaks um Mm -hmm. but just to clarify that it's it's very important because you you go do we really need that amount at all times no we don't but you need to have an infrastructure that's built around meeting peak demands and growth of a population or city from yeah, there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, one um, simple example of that is similar to the the water capacity that we have in cities and how there's an extra amount of water that we keep for the fire demand, right? So we have a certain amount of water that is calculated that's going to be uh, required um, as an output from people's household use, their washing dishes, shower, whatever, whatever. But on top of that, we also need to have extra water available for the water uh, for the fire demand. So if the fire department ever has to go put out a fire, there's extra water available for them to meet that pressure and, and flow. So similarly, we don't always need that. But for those emergency situations, when we hit that peak demand, we better have our shit together because if we hit that demand and we don't have the capacity that's that's some uh, some trouble right there you're asking for so uh back to the calculations again some rough calculations that we did based on the power consumption looking at wind power footprints so again the baseline that we worked with was you need one acre of surface area for for meeting a one megawatt capacity. So with that, we look at uh, Canada's consumption. So what is Canada's consumption, uh, or more specifically, what is Canada's capacity required in terms of power generation to meet Canada's demand, Canada's consumption, which we found to be 130,543 megawatts, which was a 2016 number. And we'll list all our sources in a follow-up document which you'll be able to download uh after the episode or in yeah in our uh, off our website well at this point yeah it will be upon request until we get to there but yeah for sure for sure and so when when it looks at the canadian consumption we have 130,000 megawatts and for the u.s consumption we have about 10 times that at 1.1 million megawatts so uh, it's a huge, uh, huge difference um, in terms of the power there. You know, one country, I guess, has ten times the population as the as the other one. So it, it makes sense that uh, there's going to be a bit of a difference there in terms of the power capacity necessary. Yeah. Um, but when we look at essentially uh, these numbers, so okay, we have um, we have the we have the um, one power footprint, right? One acre per one megawatt. And then we have the, the capacity, 100, 130,000 megawatts. So when we multiply the two, what does that give us 
it gives us uh, essentially an area of 130,000 acres because when we multiply 130,542 megawatts by the um, by one, which is one acre per one megawatt. Simple so calculation. Simple, simple calculation. Super basic. That's going to give us one hundred thirty thousand acres. So that's literally just a simple rough calculation for what is the surface area that we required if you were to meet the power capacity of Canada by simply wind power generation. Now, similarly, when it comes to solar. Okay, well, what, it, what, it, what was our uh, solar uh, area factor? Well, for a large photovoltaic uh, power plant, which is greater than 20 megawatts, what we found was that this would uh, necessitate 7.9 acres to achieve a capacity of one megawatt. Right, right. So much bigger, much bigger when you look at in comparison uh, to wind. The, the footprint for the photovoltaic power plants are much bigger in that sense. Eight times bigger, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I want to point out at this, uh, at this stage, if anybody is trying to conceptualize what is an acre, uh, this may not be a unit you're familiar with. Uh, we did do a conversion here, and I believe it was, it takes 1.3 football fields to create an acre. Or, or is it, no, yeah. one football field is 1.3 acres exactly uh, it's yes okay so this would be, yeah, like literally this would be i guess a hundred thousand football fields right if, if that uh, helps you picture it there <laughs> hundred thousand football fields if that uh, puts things into perspective for you <laughs> hopefully that helps so imagine one football field multiplied by a hundred thousand um yeah anyways so uh, on top of that, similarly, so we have our conversion factor, 7.9. We have the total demand uh, for, for capacity, 130,000. Um, when, we, when we multiply the two, we actually get 1.031 million acres. So we're dealing with over a million acres that would be required. Um, if, if, again, we were to power all of Canada's power consumption, through the use of solar. So when we look at uh, comparing the two, for wind, we had 130,000. For solar, we had over a million acres. Now, just to put that into perspective, um, we looked at, uh, for example, what is the total amount of land uh, that's available for farming within Canada, and then how much of that is used for crops. So when we looked at that ratio, we see that there's 53% of current uh, area, uh, current farmable area that's used for croppable produce or croppable land or for whatever, growing something for crops. Um, so if we were to do a comparison of that, um, uh, and, and let me just give you the raw figure there of what that uh, denominator is, we're dealing with over 160 million uh, acres uh, 166 million acres of, of available farmland in Canada. So that's a, a lot, lots of acres, lots of acres mm -hmm. of uh, available farmland. So again, 53% of that is being used for cropland and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what uh, by comparison, for, so from these numbers that we just generated, it would be 0.6%, right? So 0.6% of that total land would be used for solar and 0.078 would be used 
for wind. And and of the land, we're talking about of the land that can be used as farmland. So Mm -hmm. obviously you have your total area of Canada, a portion of that, a smaller portion. I don't know what it is. Is it like 30%, 50%? I can't remember. But point is only a portion of all land in Canada can be farmed. Exactly. You know, you got your forests, you got your mountains, not farmable land. And mm-hmm. then of that smaller um, uh, portion of farmable land, only 50% of it is used to uh, for crop growth. Because the other other subdivisions, what we look at? There was um, one was for pasture land. For, so yeah. a portion of that land is used to raise cattle and... Like fallow uh, fields... Yes, to so just give fields a rest for a year. Some portion of that land is is not considered summer fallow. I should say summer fallow. That's right. Also, yeah. seeded pasture. Yeah. yeah. So when we talk about solar taking 0.6 of 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 the land, we're talking about a farmland. So it's only a small po- a portion of yeah. Of, when you think about area. it, exactly. in fact, we did a calculation comparing it to the size of a city of uh, Ottawa, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So uh, to to again help you hopefully put things into perspective, if our example with the football fields didn't help, okay. So in terms of the total area that you would need of the solar uh, power plant to power Canada, right? This would equal about one point five times the area of Ottawa. So Ottawa, the capital of Canada, if you were to imagine the surface area of Ottawa. Times that by 1.5, so 50% bigger than the current size of Ottawa, and you could cover it all up with solar panels and power all of Canada. It's a pretty big space. But when you think about it in terms of wind, right, in terms of the, the wind, that, that would be even less because, again, wind has a, uh, has a significantly lower footprint, right? We looked at one acre per megawatt versus almost eight acres per megawatt. And that's on the upper end as well, the the eight, I should say, because uh, for for solar, it is a a bit of a range. So let me, to be fair, give it the the boundaries. So it would be, from what I calculated, uh, 3.4. Actually, no, 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 that was was the only number I got. The the other one was in a different unit. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I just want to point Mm -hmm. out to it, from uh, just a simple intuitive sense, it you look at the two different technology of wind those wind turbines they're mostly vertical uh you know towers with with the um the blades coming off the side catching the wind which is blowing parallel to the ground um it makes sense they take up less space compared to solar which is you're creating a, a surface area that catches the sun rays which are not completely perpendicular to the planet's surface but are coming at an angle so trying to capture those sun rays you have to you basically have to use up more space on the ground to to put these uh uh, these panels out to get the same Mm -hmm. amount of collection for energy Mm -hmm. yeah by just very nature of the technology is just you require more surface area of it for it um yeah one is just like a vertical pole essentially but uh, it, it it does definitely illustrate that okay so if you picture this how big Canada is and the city of Ottawa you if you were to look at the uh, you know from a wind standpoint it would be even less than the city of Ottawa so you know imagine you you partition something smaller than the city of Ottawa all throughout Canada I mean it doesn't seem too unfeasible 
I don't think anyways. But of course, this is just a raw calculation, which we want to provide more nuance and more context to. Yeah. And of course, you would never bundle all your energy in one location. You would exactly. divide it up, bring it closer to where your actual demand is. Um, so, but I think anybody looking at a map that's to scale of Canada, you, you can really think, okay, huh, you know, it's, it's not unrealistic to think we could, uh, you know, have the area, the land area needed, that's not too disruptive to our other activities. Like you, if it was taking Mm -hmm. up a large chunk of our farmland, we're sacrificing that farmland to put a new type of technology like wind in. Um, Which is an important point because that's one of the things that's often, that's one of the criticism that's often given to uh, solar and wind is that we're using a potentially good farmland for, um, you know all this power generation and stuff but you know it's maybe it's good to put that into context of how much are we actually giving up yeah definitely let's just get to arm arm ourselves with some good information in that case okay so but again um what we gave was just raw calculations for the total power capacity we needed but of course the things are more complex than what we've presented here so of course the sun isn't always going to be shining and the wind isn't always going to be blowing and in those instances you need to supplement your power somehow and that's how uh power um uh, storage energy storage or battery technology has kind of come into more and more of as a of a focal point as well because okay solar and wind are great but they're only so good if we don't have the proper energy storage mechanisms to support them so now there's more push towards whether it's battery technology or whether it's hydrogen storage whatever it might be but there does need to be something that's done for those instances so this we need to kind of um take this raw model that we presented and add those nuances such as how much would be supplemented by battery power and then in realistically how much could we supplement with nuclear which is something that we'll talk about in another episode but some people don't view nuclear very positively others do um there's positive and negative environmental aspects to it but it's 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 complex it's complex yeah the easiest technologies to work with are technologies that are reliable and as you pointed out wind and solar are unreliable so what can we do to make them more reliable like even i was just thinking about hydroelectric one of the nice things about hydroelectric is when they're set up on a water course um you you can there are fluctuations to how much water can run through and there's controls around it but you are tapping into the whole water cycle water being pulled you know our natural water cycle taking water bringing it up to a to a lake that's at a higher elevation and and then that water flows down to a lower elevation by gravity and it's rinse and repeat and we're just capturing that energy uh, at at a certain point in time um and we're taking advantage of that natural cycle, the water cycle and gravity. So you have something like solar, wind, uh, they're taking advantage of these, this, you know, obviously are the sunlight, states. all these states, but we, they are subject to uh, stagnation, just turning off, not, not being there when we need the power to be there. So how do we, how do we make it so that we capture this energy and have it there when we need it and we need to do that in a cost-effective way 
uh, to make it a realistic solution for us as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. It has to be cost effective. If we incorporate all these new technologies and it leads to people, everyday people, working class people that have to now pay two times, three times as much on their power bill. You know what? People are already struggling enough as it is. Now you're going to add all this extra cost on on the backs of people that are like, you know, hardly even making it. And what, how are you going to justify it that you're going to bring in these new renewable technologies for the environment? Well, what about the people? Like, what about the people themselves? You know, that's what I always think about. Yeah. And it gets so undercovered. And part of this was like, we've talked about it before, but the yellow jackets, you know, uh, protests over in Europe, those were kind of essentially about that point was these people were getting screwed over due to a lot of the environmental legislations that were being passed. But downstream, a lot of working class people were being impacted that weren't for it and they weren't really being, their voices weren't really being heard. But, yeah. you know, it, it, that's that's just how it goes these days. There's a narrative that people want to purvey and if this is, people don't want to uh, follow that narrative, they just get silenced and just get hushed out from the main uh, conversation. But that's a whole other Topic well, actually, it actually is a nice segue <laughs> into my first clip. Okay, perfect. Uh, I uh, I have a clip here um, that goes right down that road. So let me set this up a bit. Um, this mm-hmm. is a clip I took from the Tom Woods Show, uh, episode seventeen twelve, which was titled "Time to De Demonize Fossil Fuels." He has a guest on uh, named Alex Epstein. Alex is an American author, energy theorist, and industrial policy pundit. He is the founder and president of the Center of Industrial Progress, a for-profit organization located in San Diego, California. Um, He wrote a a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels in 2014. So obviously from the title of that book, you can get the sense that he is very pro-fossil fuel and his arguments are for the continued use of them and somewhat against wind and solar. And I think it's important because I am pro and we are pro wind and solar here. Um, and But he makes some valid points that need to be taken into consideration. So uh, I want to play some of his uh, uh, discussion with uh, Tom Woods. Uh, so yeah, if you want to go ahead and play yeah, that first, yeah, and let, let me just sure. uh, touch on that too, actually, because that's a great point that you bring up, and the reason that we did this analysis was to kind of just have a rough idea of what's possible and share that with with you guys and see, see what you think as well. You know, we ourselves we do advocate for these technologies, but at the same time, we also believe that, or maybe I'll speak for myself. I don't want to, you know, put any words in Elliot's mouth or nothing, but that it's important to take a solid approach that isn't too extreme in one direction that goes towards new and unproven technologies which haven't really been fully fleshed out and being overly reliable on them before they have been truly tested as being uh, reliable as you said steady and you know at the flick of a switch we know that they're good to go 
and it's 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 an it's an important um analysis to be done because right now you hear a lot of people really try to simplify it and push towards oh oh we just need all green energy we need all renewable energy we oh screw nuclear screw uh fossil fuels da 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 if you hear people talking like that then you know that they really don't know what they're talking about because it's such a gross oversimplification oversimplification that is just intellectually dishonest that you want to just take it down that route either that or you have no idea what you're talking about so either way not it's just whatever we can talk but if after a while you just repeat the same stuff it's just okay there's no point in continued conversation so again we're trying to bring in the nuance here we're trying to bring in the the nuance to understand that we're not just some pro solar pro wind crazy advocates but we're not also also at the same time we're not the anti it as well we're trying to find what is the true solution what is and that's the point of this podcast you know the first principles podcast just trying to break it down from from first principles here here yeah i think that's well said and i think people have exaggerated the progress we have made um to on on these technologies and push them beyond what's reasonable in terms of what they can achieve and Mm -hmm. you know exactly Going back to your point, we need to test this out on small scales, see if it works there, get a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, and see, you know, where does this work? What doesn't it work? What do we need to change? Um, it, you can't just jump in with the technology. Oh, it sounds promising on paper. Now let's do it for the entire planet. No, it, it, you're asking for a bunch of trouble if you're going to do it that way. So mm-hmm. small steps, and uh, let's see what we what these technologies can actually do for us. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, one principle of engineering is that you're very, very careful when somebody comes, some shiny salesman, uh, you know, shiny shoe salesman and with a brand new technology, brand new device, you're going to solve all your problems with this new device. Well, it's not always that simple. So you you, got to be watching out for those guys. And um, when it's new technology, very careful. When it's something proven, okay, let's let's build systems around it. Then that's where you have systems management and configurations and all that stuff. But when somebody is selling you the new shiny tool, that's the the, the order du jour but you know it's unproven then you, you might get yourself in a lot of trouble down the line so without further ado actually one thing i want to say no no one thing i just want to jump into because i think again th- there is a weird relationship a very important relationship that happens between uh engineers and inventors mm-hmm. and they're they're sometimes they're the same people um but not always but not always mm-hmm. so Let's take architects and engineers, and this is a bit of a simplification, but often I'll, I've heard of cases where an architect has a great idea. It, it looks, it's just got this beautiful design, and he brings it to an engineer, and there's a moment there where the engineer goes, like, can we actually do this? And sometimes they can't because it's you're asking for the impossible. Like structurally, it just it, there's no sound way of putting th- this thing together. But what it does when you have somebody saying, I have this vision, and you come to an engineer, it makes the engineer think, can we do it? And it pushes engineering to evolve, right? And mm-hmm. this is the same way with the salesman that says, can we do this with this technology? This is what I dream of. Um, this is my idea. Uh, and you have to have people like that to push things forward. But it, you know, you, then you have to base it in some sort of like a reality mm-hmm. as well. So you need those you pragmatic know. people to kind of check those crazy creative folks and like yo 
that that's not gonna work. That's not gonna Straight work. Up. But it's important <laughs> to have both. Yeah, yeah. but exactly, <laughs> exactly. You yeah. need you need both those folks. You need both those folks. It's it's so true. Totally. Okay, so uh, let's start this clip. Clip one. What about the response you hear these days that you didn't hear in the past from people who support wind and solar power? In the past, they really were kind of quieted down when you would say, you can't possibly supply the amount of energy we need and at a cost that's reasonable as compared to what you can get from from fossil fuels. These days, they feel like they have a comeback to that. Increasingly, you hear people saying that actually these renewables are increasingly becoming more cost-effective and more efficient in energy production. Is there anything to that? There's, I mean, there's something to that in the sense that let's distinguish between a, a substitute and a supplement and a waste. So a substitute would mean you can do what fossil fuels can do. So, and that includes, by the way, transportation, including heavy-duty things like airplanes and cargo ships and large agricultural equipment. And there's no clue of how to do that with any form of electricity, let alone solar and wind. Um, so you need to keep that in mind too. And, and it's important that people don't think about that. They just talk about electricity because that's the most plausible. But you could even ask with electricity, as long as you recognize that's not the only source, that like can you produce reliable electricity at low cost uh, can you substitute for what fossil fuels do, which is they're really, they're providing the vast majority on demand. And in practice, what happens is solar and wind are used as an unreliable supplement. So fossil fuels or nuclear or hydro are expected to provide energy, electricity in the form of electricity all the time. And then they, what happens is, and it's a really perverse policy, whenever the wind blows, you cycle down, say, the natural gas. And when the wind stops blowing, you cycle it up. And so it's basically you're running your whole grid like stop and go traffic and it's super inefficient. It wears the machines out, and but you're never substituting for it. It's a supplement, but it's a very wasteful supplement. And this is why whenever you add these, what I call unreliables, you have to pay for all the reliable energy infrastructure and the unreliable energy infrastructure and it ends up being wasteful. And that's why the more of this stuff gets used, the more expensive electricity is, and you take a place like Germany, which is about 33% electricity from solar and wind, they're not relying on it at all. It's still just a supplement, but it's a supplement that makes their electricity three times more expensive than ours is. Okay, yeah. So just as a reminder, that guy that was just speaking, that was Alex Epstein. Um, the clips began with Tom Woods. He, he actually has the podcast. Um, but, uh, before I get into it, uh, anything you want to say off the bat there about that clip? I mean, uh, a lot of what he says is true. Of course, it's, um, it's a, it's a tough game to, to play because these things are more expensive. And when it comes to turning your gas power plants on and off, it's, uh, it's true when you are operating at steady state. Right, which means you've started your engine and it's gone through its first little cycles and now it's kind of worked out the kinks, the cobwebs are off and it's running nice and even, nice and smooth, right? It's at equilibrium. Highly efficient. That's, that's when it's most efficient. When you are turning your engine on and off, by example, 
yes, that's when you generate the most emissions because you are generating a state of transience in the engine, non-steady state. Things are moving, things are changing, it's not steady, things are just getting to that point, things are ramping up. So in that sense, it can generate more uh, more CO2 by, by virtue of, of this principle. But uh, I think that might be like an oversimplification as well because, again, what we want to do is look at things by first principles, not by analogy, right? Is it similar to stop and go traffic? Maybe. Okay, yeah, we can make that analogy. But is it really? Well, no, there's actually like more complex things going on here. And for example, with a lot of these plants, right, we have scrubbers. We have ways of capturing the the emissions. And this can be done with, uh, with technologies. This can be done with... Uh, investments so there's things and even now with the carbon sequestration so just going back to how technology is going to kind of i'm a believer that technology is going to be the ultimate guide and solution that we create towards getting us out of this problem because i believe in the human ingenuity and when push comes to shove we will think of something to to help us out so so again um i think the stop and go traffic analogy for those plants can be somewhat used but again it's a coarse analogy it's not refined it's takes away from the the nuances of carbon sequestration scrubbers that you have at these power plants so but i I get it you know he's trying to like push his case where he does have a point but but again there's still some nuance to be added there so that's my quick thoughts on that no 100 percent, and i agree i think alex epstein is from california california california's energy policies are a mess so i think the failure to when you hear people uh, bring in real world examples of how renewables are messing with power you have to look at like what are the policies around the use of it because I think the failure of of uh, well implemented wind and solar into existing infrastructures comes down to poor policy and a lack of engineering imagination. Mm-hmm. You 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 increase you create better po- smarter policies around the use of it, and you are more imaginative how you how you combine it. We could end up with a lot uh, more symbiotic and less um, unreliable system. But mm-hmm. one of the ones one of the points I heard there. Uh, he made was talking about Germany and the cost of uh, of electricity there. I think he says it's either two times or three times more than the U.S. And that I wanted to look into that and uh, and look at how energy um, costs you know are around the world. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lay them out in a second. But actually, I'll just get you to maybe try to list in your head just based off a guess which which company or which country has. Uh, highest cost of electricity and which ones have the lowest okay i'm going to give you a few different countries here so we have mm-hmm. we have canada we have the u.s we have china we have kenya and germany of those uh, what's that five who do you think has the highest um cost f- uh, for electricity right now the highest cost for electricity i would say kenya so that's close. It's actually Germany. Kenya is second highest. Okay. okay. And who's who's the lowest? The lowest would be. 
I'm I'm tempted to say that it's the U.S., but I almost want to say China because they might like do some price fixing, controlling stuff there. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if it's China. It is China. So, <laughs> so let me listen. So you in that list, U.S. is in the ah. is in the middle. So uh, Germany is point three eight uh, th- sorry thirty eight cents um, per kilowatt. Uh, Kenya is point two. Uh, sorry, not cents. Sorry, sorry. I should say twenty cents, or maybe I'll just of a dollar. So 0.38 of a dollar per per kilowatt is Germany. Kenya is 0.2 per kilowatt. U- the U.S. is 0.15 U.S. dollars per kilowatt. Canada is 0.11 U.S. dollars per kilowatt, and China is 0.08 U.S. dollars per kilowatt. So now let's look at Germany. Um, as of 2019, there the population there is 38 million, so higher than Canada, but much less than the states. Uh, and I believe Canada is around 37 million people currently, or as of 2019. And in the U.S., they're up at 330 million, 328 to be more exact. So. You know, that's just to keep that in mind. So let's look at their their energy source breakdown. Mm-hmm. So their re- renewables there make up 46% of their energy source. So their non-renewables include nuclear, which is about 13, 14%, uh, uh, lignite, which is a, a poorer quality of coal. It's uh, the lowest, I believe. Uh, it's a very soft coal uh, made from peat. There's hard coal, which makes up 9%. Natural gas, which is methane gas predominantly, uh, which makes up 10%. Um, So that's their non-renewables. Of the renewables, hydropower makes up only 3.8% there. And wind makes up 24.5%. And solar makes up 9.1%. So combined together, so wind and solar combined together make up 33.6%. So almost... Uh, one third of their uh, energy sources come from wind and solar specifically. And this is very important because this is a very large number compared to the other four examples we're going to go through. And, and they also had high amounts of hydroelectric. They're, no, they're hydroelectric. Oh, sorry, it was low. It was, it was like low three. with only 3.8. Yeah. And, and that was really their only source of, uh, the, of renewables. The last, the last was there, one of the renewals is biomass, and it makes biomass. about 10%, 8.6. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a lot, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It mm, is quite, a, quite, a, quite a chunk. So, we'll move on to Kenya because well, I one have, thing to note about yeah. that, though, just real quick before we uh, move away from Germany, but sure. Germany, funny enough, has I'm pretty sure the biggest coal mine in the world. So it's it's kind of like <laughs> an interesting point as well, which is Where are they selling that coal to, or who's buying that coal from? Well, I, I think it was a substitute because mm-hmm. they made a huge push away from nuclear power, right? If you remember back when Fukushima happened in Japan, two thousand nine, twenty ten, there was a huge push around the world to move away from nuclear power. One of those places was Germany, and there was some legislation, a lot of legislation passed to essentially decommission a lot of their nuclear power plants. So I was surprised that it was, it was even that high, to be honest. But it's just kind of um, kind of interesting in that sense that they did decommission those plants, introduced more, uh, I guess, fossil fuels, which theoretically would be cheaper, but I guess due to many reasons, it still remains high. So anyway, just an interesting thought i had about that but okay what do you mean it still remains high because because i think i think 
what, what, the, the, the cost still remains high. The cost of electricity. Right. In Germany. Mm-hmm. 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 Even though they, you know, theoretically, they got that fossil fuel, right? Which was, when we think about it with this guy, which maybe might counter, contradict maybe the point you're going to make as well later on. So I'm like going to off, off cut you. <laughs> no, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Before, so I might even just say right here, but, you know, yeah, they, they have a lot of renewables, but they also have a lot of coal. So if they have a lot of coal, you would think it'd be cheaper. But I guess, relatively speaking, the coal was only like 10% and renewables were around like 30%. So, so yeah, that, let's actually break that down because once mm-hmm. you see the other portfolios from different countries, you'll get an understanding. Mm-hmm. But yeah, one of the things that I wanted to keep mm-hmm. in mind, my skeptical mind said, you know, Alex Epstein says um, costs of electricity are higher in Germany. And that is a fact. Then he also says they have a very high wind and solar and that's also a fact and then he says be- because they have high wind and solar they have high high energy and you have two variables mm-hmm. can you clearly say that the reason you know um it costs more in germany and electricity is simply because they use a lot of wind and solar i actually don't have you know a full proof of that it could be something else but when you look at at their use of wind and solar proportionally you will see they are a bit of an outlier. Mm-hmm. However, let's just simplify again Germany's situation. About 50%, I'm, and I'm rounding up numbers here, but 50% is renewables, okay? Of that renewables, about 33, one-third of it is is wind and solar. And when, to answer your question about how much they use for coal, if you combine their use of uh, lignite coal and hard coal combined, that's another 30%. So they have about equal use mm-hmm. of coal okay. to to um so, to wind and solar okay so yeah let's let's continue with kenya let's sure. do it. so kenya i had no idea what to expect there uh they uh have like first off their costs are less than germany they germany was at 0. 0.3 0.38 uh of a dollar per kilowatt they're at 0. 0.2 um but they're still high on the list uh and they have interestingly enough a large chunk 68 percent of their total energy sources are from renewables but a large chunk of it 37.8 almost 40 percent is hydro Mm -hmm. the next one underneath it is geothermal Mm -hmm. they only use wind which is at 1.2 percent and uh co-generation at 1.7 percent so wind there is no maybe it's so insignificant their use of solar i'm surprised not even on the list here is only 1.2 percent of the renewables yet overall the renewables make up almost 70 percent of their uh total sources so but that's because they have the ability to use hydro uh, i think in that case and then when you look at their non their fossil fuel based um fuels because i don't believe they have any nuclear in their portfolio in kenya in kenya that's correct so they have gas turbines um and uh emergency power plant uh, what's this ms msd i'm actually not familiar with what that is msd hmm. not sure to be honest let's consult i don't know msd hmm, what do you think mass that is? I don't know. Massive shit. I don't know. (laughs) 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 Pete? Well, I am seeing... uh, No, that's not... Was it MSD? Yep. Medium speed diesel? Power plant? 
Oh, it might be diesel. Yeah, it might mm. be some form of diesel. Yeah, that's what it looks yeah. like it is. Because yeah. I have a lot of yeah, di- I can see diesel being used in the to, for as a mode of power generation in a place like that. Yeah, medium speed diesel is what that stands for in that. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Interesting. Okay, so moving on. U.S. It came in the middle of our list. They their cost for electricity was 0.15 of the U.S. dollar per uh, kilowatt hour, and they have an interesting portfolio. So 38% of their total energy source comes from natural gas. 23% comes from coal. 20% comes from nuclear. And renewables make up a whopping 17%. So they have very few, uh, a very much smaller of, of, of a proportion of their total energy source comes from renewables. And of that 17%, wind and solar make up only 9.8% of that. And wind by itself is larger at 7%. And solar only makes up 1.8%. In the U.S. right now, but I see a larger balance in terms of they have the natural gas at, at you know their predominant one at, at almost forty percent, followed by coal at almost twenty percent, nuclear at twenty percent, and your renewables, and they have one percent for other petroleum uh, type type uh, generation uh, power generation. Okay, jumping off to Canada, going coming home here. Um, Canada, what Bring do you home, think? Baby. Bring it home. Our renewable uh, percentage, do you think it's better or worse than the U.S.? I, I'm pretty sure it's um, better. Yes. Yeah. Better. Uh, I mean, 17% that which it was the U.S. one, that's, that's some low, that's some weak sauce, man. Like, So let's weak look at to- total renewables in Canada make up 67%. But our wind and solar is actually less than the states. It's 5.7% combined. So wind makes up only 5.1% and solar is a mere 0.6% of our total. Yeah. It's kind of cold up here, bro. (laughs) We don't have too much sun, man. (laughs) And we got water. We got lots of water. So hydro makes up 60% of our our total uh, energy uh, sources for generation Mm -hmm. and uh, nuclear makes up 15 percent we have a little bit of coal at seven percent we've got gas oil and others at 11 percent and then like i said seven percent for our non-hydro renewables which is predominantly our wind and our solar um but yeah whopping whopping uh percentage is for hydro and something to keep in mind here so right now you know we are in the we are on we're lower than the U.S. in terms of how much we pay for our electricity. We're at, we're at 0.15 U.S. dollars per kilowatt. However, it is on average common to, you know, if you own a small apartment and you heat by electric baseboard, you turn on the light, you have a, you know, you have your water heater, you can easily pay in Ontario, in Ottawa, 100 bucks a month for your hydro. And in rural Ontario, it's not unheard of. Like you're out in a farmhouse, um, you know, in the country somewhere, you're paying between two hundred to four hundred dollars a month, okay, mm. for for electricity. And this could be you supplementing with uh, propane gas as your heating source, uh, wood as your heating source, and you're still paying two hundred to four hundred uh, dollars a month. And mm. this to me seems like a lot considering also that we are one of the we able to generate pretty cheap electricity here so the question becomes 
as we discussed before, yes, we want to introduce these renewables, wind and solar, but uh, you know, can we afford? How do we do it so that the cost of introducing them is not just pushed on to the residents of a province or country and makes the ability to live, uh, the living, the cost of living, impossibly hard and uh, oppressive to a point? Uh, in the name of what? In the name of trying to curb carbon emissions um yeah so a bunch of rich people that can actually afford to pay those hikes they can feel good about themselves tap themselves on the back while the people that can't afford them have to bear the brunt of the of these changes and hey by the way these are oftentimes you know lower class people these might be underprivileged people so they're the ones that are getting the short of the stick again for some people trying to make policies that make them feel better at night or whatever i don't know it's <laughs> yeah, gross exactly yeah. yeah well let's pop over to china the great mm-hmm. manufacturing superpower of our time yes and uh you know their population 1.4 billion people billion? as of <laughs> that's right with a b billion. uh that's as of 2018 uh so it's going to be a little larger than that they have 65% of their uh, electric electricity generation comes from coal. Yeah, did you Boom. Sh- cheap reliable energy. And when you look at wind and solar, uh there it makes up 8.4% with wind being 5.4% and solar making up 3%. So they actually have solar comparable uh to uh well larger than Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but similar, their, their wind and solar use is similar to the to the United States. They just m- massive amounts of their power uh, is made predominantly through coal. Um, let's see here, natural, so much coal, so much coal, sixty percent. Like, and nuclear there is only five wow. percent. Hydro is comes in. I think hydro is their second largest, and it comes in at seventeen percent. So hydro. Yeah, that's right. So hydro, so it goes coal at sixty five, hydro at seventeen percent, nuclear at five percent, uh, natural gas at three point three percent. Yeah. Uh, so interesting, um, yeah. and they have the cheapest electricity, right? Point mm-hmm. zero eight, almost half of no, uh, not half of Canada. Yeah, half of Canada, right? We're at point one five. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, no, that was the U.S. That was the U.S. Uh, the yeah. U.S. was 0.15. So basically half the cost of the U.S. Uh, for their electricity there. Right. So interesting. So China's paying half as much as Americans in terms of their electricity costs. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Anyways, yeah. or anyway, as it should be said correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom, uh, let's go back to that Tom Woods podcast. So yes. uh, Tom Woods basically asks... Alex, you know, what does he think the most undesirable effect of fossil fuels are? Um, That's the setup for this next clip. Okay, so clip number two. Let's give it a go. I mean, I think the side effects that are undesirable are definitely, I think the number one is air pollution in poorer countries. So if you look at smog in China or in India, and 
it's not to say that isn't preventable. I think it is It is preventable through best practices. But to a certain extent, if you're a really poor country and sometimes the pollution control systems cost money, then it won't be worth it. So it'll be worth it to do better than China. And China obviously doesn't, res- or at least obviously to us, does not respect individual rights. So there are all sorts of issues there. But I'd say air pollution is the number one thing that is an issue because, and the reason it's an issue is because coal is so valuable and nothing comes close to coal in terms of low-cost, reliable electricity that can be used anywhere. That's why it's so dominant in the developing world. Uh, But if you don't have the right pollution control, then it it does have an undesirable side effect. It's nowhere near the benefit, which is why you see the life expectancy in these places, even when they have a lot of coal pollution, go to up seven, 10 years. And that's totally driven by fossil-fueled machines, like machines that allow you to become a manufacturing powerhouse and industrialize, et cetera, uh, et cetera. But yeah, that is the air pollution, I would say, is, is the biggest one. But fortunately, we have huge, we have really good ways of dealing with that. I mean, with coal, you can burn coal really cleanly. And we do that for the most part in the US. Of course, you can also use natural gas, which is naturally more clean burning, where that makes economic sense. But there are a lot of places in the world where it doesn't make economic sense to use natural gas, whereas coal is super easy to use anywhere because there's a ton of it and it's really easy to transport. Okay. Yeah. So, what you, first impressions off of that clip there? Would you Would you have come to mind after hearing that? Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's uh, coal. I, I don't know if it's it's tough to say whether or not coal can be clean necessarily. Yeah. But it kind of like maybe he's alluding to what I I had mentioned previously was having like scrubbers, having the technology essentially after combustion has taken place, right? Where you, down your tailpipe, where you are collecting your um, gases that are being off, uh, that are being shot off uh, due to the combustion process and they're being collected via some sort of uh, substitution process, right? Like they're going into the water, they're coming out of the water, the water is now becoming saturated with all these um, chemicals, whatever, and then the water gets uh, settled to the bottom, collected, treated, whatever, mm-hmm. right? So so there's different things. Maybe that's what he's talking about, but... That's exactly what I picked up on too. I want to... Uh, you know, what is meant by clean? And the second thing that I, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to address out of this clip was um, him talking about how the use of coal and the pollution it creates might actually, what it can do for a country may not actually outweigh uh, the damage it does because he was talking about life expectancy. So those two parts of what I caught out of it. So I mm-hmm. actually went to popular mechanics and they have a little bit about what it means to be clean coal because you hear that come out of the states all the time clean coal we got clean coal what does this mean so this is what popular mechanics says the term clean coal has been has been applied to many technologies ranging from wet scrubbers which remove sulfur dioxide from coal generated gas to coal washing which removes soil and rock from coal before it is sent to a factory Hypothetically, the term could be applied to anything that makes coal plants more efficient, like digitization. However, when people talk about clean coal these days, they're typically talking about something called carbon capture and storage, CCS. So bang on the money, what you're talking about there. Um, That's what's meant by clean coal. But I like that they point out that hypothetically, you can use this term clean coal to mean a bunch of different things, and it could be as simple as digitizing and making it more efficient and not necessarily removing a certain pollutant whether the 
pollutant target is, you know, CO2, mercury, particulate, something like that. It, it, you know, you got to ask, you know, when they say clean coal, what specifically is this person meaning by it? Wait, sorry, what do you mean by digitizing the process? Or? So I think they mean if if you were able to uh, take a, a power plant and uh, basically uh, digitize it as an run a more complex smart system in in the in smart grid system in the plant mm -hmm. the mere fact that you have a computer now you know mo mo with sensors monitoring the situation and making oh. adjustments in real time that is oh come on yeah <laughs> but, get the, but that's get what the saying. fuck it's out like, of here right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what does the word clean coal mean well it could mean yeah, hypothetically it could mean come that on, yeah know, it's so yeah it's so dishonest if that's actually the case like e even in the case with the with the scrubbers that's still not really clean coal mm. it's still a dishonest way of framing it because clean coal to me sounds as though it's a it's like the coal itself has been treated to a point where when you burn it there's no longer any emissions or pollutants that come out of it or like so i'm like what the hell is clean coal so it's it's a, i guess it's more more sexy to say that than okay we're gonna do carbon sequestration with combustion like well yeah what, what are you i always guess hair, dirty coal coal so dirty they're yeah. like instead of saying oh, it's less dirty coal they're like let's just what's the opposite of dirty i ah, clean i was clean there coal. you go yeah there you go <laughs> greenwashing maybe tactics i don't know greenwashing for coal for coal wow right? boom love it <laughs> love it and, and so there further in that popular mechanics article um someone points out uh he says um some people point uh, to the fact that coal has so many pollutants that no singular technology can capture them all. They point to mercury, nitrogen oxide, other poisonous contaminants that coal uh, plants uh, could and still produce even if, if they're not uh, putting out CO2. So you might have someone say, oh, we got clean coal. Oh, that's because we have these scrubbers that are focusing on getting rid of CO2. Um, but you have to ask yourself, are they also the, CO2? That's only one component. It's one component of it for for both humans and climate change uh in uh, so there's it falls into two factors uh the 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 capturing of, of the co2 in, in this case exactly so you know the dude brings up okay pollution mm -hmm. right that's one of the biggest issues with these types of things is the air pollution so when you say something like smart or uh, clean coal it, it with a spark rig it implies that you're actually doing something about the pollution well not really like it, it's still there it's it's still happening and it's you can call it what you want but you, you know what it's I don't, it's still having that th those impacts that are that are taking place um yeah. yes definitely now i, I want to ask you a question when do you think uh you know coal fire plants came to be like when did that technology c come online if you had to take a wild guess i had no idea <laughs> But what would you? Where do you think uh, coal coal came about as a, as a as a power plant? As a power plant, yeah. Like not just being used in not like, just being burnt like, as like um, I mean coal has been around for ages, so you could argue. But like the first, um, you know, power like plant that was made uh, to for electricity pr production. Okay, um, probably back in the early twentieth century, I would say like yeah, nineteen tens, nineteen twenties. It was actually actually in 1882, okay. allegedly. Uh, Thomas Edison built the first central power station in New York. 
but the technology was being like for power generation large scale was dates back to 1866. So somewhere in mm. the late 1800s, we see coal come online. And mm. I bring this up because I have a graph here that shows the life expectancy in China, which is quite a shocking graph. Mm-hmm. Um, for the change in life expectancy. So back in just 1950, okay, Mm -hmm. life expectancy was only, it's hard to read. 40 years old or something? Just under 40. Yeah. Just under 40. Over the last, what is that? So, you know, 1940 up to 2020, we have it's steeply increasing to now somewhere just below 80, uh, you know, 75, 80. So uh, over 80 years, it's gone up by about 40 years. So a, a country that predominantly is still using one of the dirtiest, most polluting types of energy production, and this is what I, I believe Alex is pointing to, um, like they have seen this life expectancy increase mm-hmm. happen here. And as as actually a point maybe to kind of uh, talk about a little bit in more detail actually is that I think when he's bringing up that point, what he's saying is that it's not like it's the coal that has directly led to the increase in life expectancy It's the economic wealth that has resulted from using the coal. So access to energy. So you know what? People can actually go and uh, go, go to school and there's lights. They can go home. There's lights for them to study. There's education taking place. There's economic wealth. There's development. So to me, like when I'm looking at this uh, holistically, it's not as though the coal or the oil or the natural gas, they're directly linked to this increase in life expectancy, but it's it's the overall wealth that they provide. So then my question is, can we provide that wealth through an alternative means? Right, right. And I, I think that's feasible, but obviously it's more complicated, but you know, like Again, it's it's not like a it's 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 more indirect the relationship. It's not as direct. Yeah, one thing I ca- that caught my attention about the life expectancy graph in China is we didn't see large jumps in life ex- expectancy happening until after 1950. And I just told you that you know the technology for coal has been around since you know late 1800s. So, but I I looked at um, the like when did China start to mass produce coal? And the graph actually matches up with the spike in like life uh, life ex, uh, mm-hmm. expectancy. So they didn't that back in 1950. They were or, um, actually back in nine. Sorry, yeah, back in 1950, they were making uh, what is the graph here? Do do do. They were making less than 500 million tons per year of coal, but then from 50s to now it, it goes up staggeringly high and now in 2020 they make uh 3 billion 700 million tons per year so their wow. the ramping up of coal actually correlates with <laughs> their like their whole epic economic system happening mm-hmm. boom happening and, and because it's true it, it's true right like what what the dude is saying is that it is true that you have more coal, you have more energy, you have economic wealth and growth, which is going to lead to more opportunities, education, growth, which is going to impact life expectancy. But it's just like, you know, how direct 
or it's like to, to what point like how far can it get you yes it's like what what got you from a to b might not be the same thing that gets you from b to c yeah right it, it there comes a what's that called like limiting returns basically exactly. after a certain point and speaking of what's true and not true this is a point that you brought up two episodes back on the green new deal and i think it's worth iterating now let and let me read directly from the green new deal here's the quote it begins with you know well let me back up you the Green New Deal begins with some facts, you know, some facts about the state of things in the U.S. that we uh, that, uh, you know, uh, justify what the Green New Deal is putting out as the solution. OK, and here's sets what the it, stage. Sets yeah, the sets stage, the stage. OK, yeah. and this is one of the points um, you brought this up earlier, but it fits in really nicely here. So the Green New Deal says, whereas in uh, sorry, whereas the United States is currently experiencing several related crises with one life expenses expectancy declining with basic needs such as clean air clean water healthy food and adequate health care housing transportation and education are inaccessible to a significant proportion of the united states so it begins with life expectancy is declining and i went back to look at the u.s graph and this is what you talked about on the episode the decline happens quite literally be- is um, the difference of a couple of years, uh, people living up to their 80s, into their late, or no, sorry, their late 70s, over the last three or four years. In reality, the U.S. has gone up from way back in, in 1865, the life expectancy was at four, uh, to your, was your, into your 40s um, in the United States. So they, all the way back in 1865, were where China was at in, you know, the 1950s. And they've seen increases. Uh, so where where was the U.S. at uh, in 1950? Let me look here. So in 1950, life expectancy in the U.S. versus uh, was, was about 65, almost 70. Whereas in China, it was still around 40. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've, for the last 20, 30 years, it's been all above 70 between 70 and 80 and this little micro drop of you know a couple years has happened over a very short period of time and and they are not even using that much coal yeah (laughs) you know you know they're using natural gas they could be using a lot more renewables by that graph compared to other countries but i mean that's something that they uh you know they they they're predominantly you know a big fan of their natural gas coal and oil uh, used in the united states mm-hmm. and, and, and like one thing to cut, just kind of like tie in the green new deal just since we're on that topic mm-hmm. is just that when when you make these and just like in general when you make these types of like grandiose statements where you are trying to talk about life expectancy and then how what you're going to do to improve life expectancy well first you have to actually make that connection that what you're going to do is actually going to improve or have uh, have a positive impact on the life expectancy so if somebody can really easily point to certain data and uh, facts that kind kind of paint a countering narrative that okay if the green new deal is your proposition for increasing life expectancy well actually life expectancy can increase through a multitude of different ways one of them being economic growth which can be provided by increase in um, uh, oil and gas increase in coal increase in 
maybe non-renewable energy power production that can also lead to an increase in life expectancy. Right. So it's, it's just to, I don't know, it's just like a funny thing where sometimes like policies, politicians will try to say, oh, we're going to fix an issue and this is what we're going to do to do that, to fix that issue. And it's just having that kind of moment of clarity to check, wait, is that thing that you're proposing actually going to help that thing? Maybe it is, but well, maybe there's some other stuff here saying kind of like the opposite. So let's just try to look at it wholeheartedly, holistically, not just one dimensionally. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out about that clip too, uh, cause you know, Alex Epstein was asked like, what is his, what does he think the most undesirable uh, effect of, uh, fossil fuel uses? And, uh, you, as you notice, it wasn't CO2 emissions. Um, and I listened to that podcast and I, and I didn't get his full argument for it. And I think he, it probably is explained in his books or his other talks about what he thinks about CO2 emissions and climate change. Um, but, uh, you know, I wanted to switch gears because he, he does make a comment about the whole climate change situation. Uh, before we play this next clip, I wanted to actually uh, do a reminder from our last podcast about, uh, you know, we were talking about NASA uh, website saying, you know, 90% of scientists agree. I want to reiterate that here and clarify something um, that could have been misconstrued from the last podcast. So. On NASA's website, uh, they talk about, they're talking about climate change and they say this, multiple studies published in peer-reviewed scientific journals show that 97% or more of actively publishing climate scientists agree climate warming trends over the past century are extremely likely, likely due to human activities. Okay, so I wanted to clarify my stance on this um, because we were, we, we were, Kind of, I was critical of it on the last uh, uh, last podcast there. So uh, I believe climate change is happening, and I'm I'm not against the idea uh, that the truth could be that human activity has been predominantly driving climate change uh, that we've seen over the last century. That's I'm fine with that. That's fine. My stance is this: one, I'm against this idea that some people have. Um, that somehow it it is not okay to question and re-verify scientific conclusions and or theories. So it, it seems to me like some people have this idea that like once a majority, uh, you know, has this idea, we just accept this idea that on this scientific theory and just, that's it finalized. But like to, to, to it's not, not written be allowed in to stone. Que- it's not written in stone. And you should always, to me, it's like you should always be able to, question it and you should be you should be always constantly trying to re-verify these uh the conclusions of these studies you know re-verifying that results are consistent and are can are predicting the same thing over and over again is a big part of science so that is that is one of my uh my stances and the second is uh i guess i'm concerned about the ways in which we still try and deal with uh you know deal with the impacts of climate change so this is the whole kind of topic of this episode. You know, we hear the boogeyman is climate change. Therefore, the response is let's switch completely over to wind and solar. And as we've laid out in this, it's not that simple. Like my concern is with with the threat of climate change being this made out to be this big scary thing. 
we're going to make bad policy and choices out of as a, you know a pressure uh, you know pressure from people uh, to to do something and the effect of that could be devastating like it, if we make it basically unaffordable to uh, basically have basic you know power our basic power needs met uh, on a monthly basis because power has jacked up so high because we've introduced all this renewable technology how is that helping anybody as we've said before so i just want to clarify those two those two points um before we play uh mm-hmm. clip three here mm-hmm. okay thank you thank you elliot i think it's important to know yeah what our take is on climate change um seeing for myself as well i do believe in a human-made climate change and its impacts it's just a question of how big its impacts have been and what are the measures that we can truly take to to mitigate them so those are kind of like the things to think of like on a more pragmatic level so we're looking at the third clip now third clip yeah okay you want to introduce it real quick or yes uh, if i remember correctly it is tom woods and talking about this exact problem discussing climate change and and if you're not completely on board with you know oh we we gotta do throw everything at it it's happening it's all man's fault um you are labeled as another and it's very hard to have a discussion and and this is kind of what uh what mm-hmm. they get into yeah because yeah like real quick it's like it's like i said you know policymakers they have some solutions to address problems but oftentimes those solutions they propose to address those issues they might not be the ideal ones so it doesn't hurt to question them so okay let's play this video there's no video it's just an audio clip <laughs> let's get over for now to climate because that's really where a lot of the discussion of energy ultimately winds up particularly these days and uh, they've kind of stacked the deck so that if you are even skeptical of whether draconian measures are truly necessary, that alone makes you some kind of a crank, you're outside the mainstream, haven't you heard about 97% of scientists, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's almost impossible to have a conversation because you have to spend so much time tearing down these preconceptions everybody has, these walls they've built up that prevent their own ears from hearing what you're saying. That's the frustrating part of this, it seems to me. Just even to start the conversation, right off the bat, you're assumed to be some backward idiot who doesn't understand science. Yeah, so to to talk about that point, and then I'll give some suggestions on how to deal with it, what you have is, in philosophy, is called an equivocation, which is the same term as used to mean a bunch of, of different things, usually to manipulate people. So the term climate change and agreeing with climate change, sometimes that means that CO2 emissions cause you know, some of the one degree warming that's occurred in the last 170 years. So sometimes it means that, which is a very mild thing. Sometimes it means it's it's going to cause dramatic warming in the future. And sometimes it means it's going to cause such dramatic warming in the future that we need to get rid of fossil fuels, even though that would end billions of lives prematurely. And what happens with these 97% type things is they take the first one, which is fossil fuels contribute to some of the warming, and then they equate that with we have to outlaw fossil fuels. So one shorthand way of thinking of this is that climate change, like believing in, quote, climate change, which is a pretty vague term, but believing in man-made climate influence, which is a little more precise, that's not the same as believing in man-made climate catastrophe, let alone believing in a Green New Deal, which is the most irrational way to deal with anything because it's also anti-nuclear and largely... um, Anti-hydro. Anti-hydro. It kind of cut off there a little bit, but mm-hmm. we've we brought this up on ourselves. You know, even before mm-hmm. I had heard this guy's talk, 
we had discussed the Green New Deal and, you know, uh, it's pretty obvious they left nuclear out and they don't discuss hydroelectric at all. Um, and, no. you know, why is that? You know, is it because they're against it because it's a hot button topic? Yeah, probably, you know. It's a simplification too. Yeah. I think some of it is them kind of running away from the negative environmental impacts of the hydroelectric power. Um, you know, that was a big thing uh, where, uh, like, eutrophication of the waters and just um, spoiling of the local fish populations. Like, that was a big pushback. I think more so in the eighties and nineties after the like hydroelectric power plants were kind of championed as like the way forward mm -hmm. but then after their widespread implementations then and their side effects and the residual effects became apparent they were no longer seen as being kind of the environmental solutions that should be idealized similar to nuclear as well where th they look at some of the issues that have taken place and come to the conclusion maybe prematurely i would say that these are no longer viable solutions if we want to go in a direction that's considered environmentally friendly and sustainable but uh, like i don't hold that vision myself right yeah yeah so i i mean i agree with a lot of the points made by both uh both those guys in uh in that last clip there um because the big thing that has always bugged me about the term agreeing with climate change is it's it's so vague it really is and it can be used to mean a host of different things and even going back to my analysis of that first question in the vice presidential debates that happened in the u.s a couple months back you can see if you know the question has to be framed in such a way that you know very clearly specifies what is meant by you know climate agreeing with climate change or do you believe in it yeah, because it, it can mean be. such a vast you know uh uh you know idea of uh, like a blanket statement really yeah that covers so many different things where it's like okay well let's try to break it down and understand what we're talking about because even some people might look at us and be like, oh, you're climate deniers based mm -hmm. on some of the things we've said without fully taking it into full consideration the, you know, the more wholesome approach that we're trying to take and, you know, try to understand like, okay, if we do have climate change, how do we best address it? Which, uh, you know, when you have the uh, people pointing a, a gun at you almost they're like, make a, make a decision, make a choice now. <laughs> what do you want to do? That's what it almost feels like. Yeah. And yeah, it's hard to make a good sound choice, sound decision when you have somebody screaming at on your ear, like, come on, man. I also think there's a growing proportion of people that believe that even uh, if they listen to us discuss it in the way that we're discussing it, um, it's we're doing a disservice by by mere the mere fact that we are discussing the nuances and the problems, uh, we are spreading doubt, doubt about something that's certain so it's like it's almost and that's the type of censorship you see happening more and more um about certain ideas is you're not even you know just having a conversation even if what you're saying is reasonable uh think that the idea that you think you have to discuss it like in in this in this analytical way is like uh, no no can't be having that 
Yeah, no. It's, You're it's spreading like, doubt. Yeah, no, you can't be spreading doubt. You can't be spreading doubt with your facts. Like, how dare you spread spread your facts all over here? And now that creates doubt? No, we want people to believe what we want them to believe. Don't give them information for them to have more nuanced opinions. Don't give them information for them to understand something at a higher level, not just in one-dimensional freaking analysis. Like, what, one big thing that always comes back to me is this whole uh, breakdown that, oh, we need... Uh, to do everything in 10 years by 2030 you know that's that's it like if the, if not like what do you think is going to happen after 2030 like let's be real what do you think is going to happen after 2030 what it's going to be like freaking um day after tomorrow the seas have risen up to the tip of the eiffel tower to the tip of the statue of liberty like what do people actually think is going to happen after 2030 like i don't get when people use these apps you want to talk about science like something being anti-scientific giving a 10-year timeline for something like this that's anti-scientific because that means that you know for absolute certainty with your absolutely uncertain models that you're going to have something happen in 10 years so you're going to use something absolutely uncertain to generate an answer that's absolutely certain like that makes no sense back when i was doing research we had an expression that garbage in equals garbage out. Right. Right. You may be able to produce results. You might be able to generate data. But if it's garbage in, you're going to just get garbage out. You're going to be publishing a whole lot of garbage. And sorry to say this, but the research, there's a whole lot of garbage out there. So, yeah, 97% of researchers agree on something. Yeah, like, who gives a shit? Like, like... <laughs> Like, excuse me, but I don't know, to me, like, that, that, like, if you make a statement like that, to me, that means that you don't actually understand what the situation is. You want to output your thinking, your brain power to somebody else, to another entity, and you want to allow that entity to do your thinking for you. Now, I understand it might be something complex. You know, we don't all have the capacity to think about everything. But when you're making those types of statements, we, what I'm hearing is I don't have the ability to think about this myself, so I'm going to say some number like, oh, you know what, 97% of people agree with what I'm saying, so therefore I'm right, but without fully understanding what the first principles of their arguments are. Uh, so, I mean, that's what, that's what we're doing our thing, and if you think science is static, again, you don't understand how science works. Science is continuously changing it changes slowly because of the scientific method you're taught to be a skeptic you're taught to question things if a new theory comes in that's all flashy and looks all dope you're supposed to be skeptical about it and poke it and prod it and analyze it try to find flaws with it that's what the scientific method is that's why it takes a long time but because it takes a long time doesn't mean it doesn't change at all doesn't mean it's static it's you know similar to geological time it's happening but it takes so long you know you almost don't notice it but yeah. it is changing the geologies are changing the science is changing if you look at science now to 100 years ago to what our ideas of the atoms were to uh, how nuanced and how detailed our models from just a simple nucleus to having these electrons circling it to having more complex ideas of having more complex models that you know govern how our universe and at a molecular level is governed 
this these take time it takes time to you first you have one basic model it's course then you develop new models that incorporate more information you have more data so you have to get and then the new data doesn't fit the old model so you have to create a new model that encompasses the old model and also the new information so this shit takes time man this shit takes time but it does change so for you to say 97% believe x so therefore that's it 100% that's it like it's just that's just not how it works and it's just and the whole climate discussion is based around predicting the future through models and we have said you know models are great they are but they are always just an estimate that we are taking what we know about physics and all these cycles on this planet and trying to represent reality through a model and put a few conditions in and see what is generated what is the consequence of doing x y if we allow this much more warming what will happen however you know obviously these are very complex models but let's just point to something very simple that everybody can understand we have been predicting trying to predict the weather every single day you know for how many years now we have really complex uh complex models to help us predict weather however we still have a hard time predicting weather beyond 24 hours accurately there are still so many cases where you know it says it's you know six you know it's going to be rain it doesn't rain we don't know for 100 percent that all these, so if it is you know weather something that happens every day climate is like these overarching trends the so, you know something as simple as that is you have to understand um if we're struggling with this on a, on a short-term basis you know you could see how that can those those uncertainties multiply as you start to try to predict the future more and more, and we're trying to look at a crystal ball and say, in tw- ten years, this is what's going to happen. How, honestly, really, you think you can capture everything from ten years when we we're having a hard time predicting what's going to happen next week with the weather? You know, yeah. that's that's you got to keep that in mind when you look at these models. But the models Legit. themselves are, you know, are they're good for telling us what what's in the realm of possibility for us and. As somebody who wants to see us diversify our energy portfolio, use renewables more, it to me it's a good way to to discuss why it's important to make policies to make that change happen in the first place. Why the status quo shouldn't be something that we just stop at and say this is it, this is as good as it gets. It is it is a driving force for change that could be good change for us in the future um but used incorrectly it's uh, can do something very different that that scares me really realistically yeah yeah like the the models are only as good as the conditions it's like what i said garbage in equals garbage out if you have a shitty model doesn't matter what your inputs are you're gonna get shitty outputs and we we need people that understand the complexities of this and that that it's not going to be a simple one size fits all solution and not only that but that there's uh, probabilities involved here that there are legitimate probabilities and we uncertainties and nobody wants to talk about the game of uncertainties because in politics you have to talk like you know everything or else people aren't going to vote for you you're going to lose voters because if you sound like you don't know what you're talking about then all of a sudden you're incompetent then you're not going to get hired for a job but in the realm of reality in the realm of life this is quite common we do this every day we do we run risk analyses in our back in the backgrounds of our subconscious if we're like it or not if we're aware aware of it or not Mm -hmm. we are constantly doing probabilistic analysis and that is to say that things are not 
100% certain. So when we hear about these talks, we have to understand that there's some uncertainties with it. Not everything is certain. And your model is only as good as your understanding of the world. And again, when we are tr- the, the, the further you get into the future, the harder it is to predict. So if we're having trouble predicting a couple of days into the future, how are we going to be predicting a couple hundred years into the future 20 50 years and again it's it's also to uh, add to your point it's not to say to throw away the models and scrap the whole project and it's not worthwhile no that's why we're doing it is to understand the real world but it's to understand the limitations of our analysis and understand where it applies where it doesn't apply what are the probabilities what are the the uncertainties what are the risks but again these are the nuances that you don't hear politicians or media talk about because they think you're too dumb they think you're not smart enough they think we're not smart enough to understand these more nuanced ways of approaching these situations but i think that they're mistaken i think that they are wrong in their analysis yes absolutely wrong that's all I have. Do you want to wrap this yeah. thing up? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we I think we did a lot. So just as a quick little wrap up, we started off with some energy calculations. We looked at solar power. We looked at wind power. If we were to power the energy capacity, the power capacity within Canada, within U.S., through these renewable means, how much surface area would be covered. We found that the surface area covered is not uh, not very significant. It, you know what? Um, we, we do have, I think, the area necessary. We we do have the land necessary to get us moving in the right direction. But then we come to some more nuanced ideas. Well, you know, what about the battery technology? What about transportation? Mm-hmm. You know, all, all these other things that we have to take into consideration. How do we make something like solar and wind, which are unreliable, more reliable? And in fact, that will be one of the topics we discuss in our next podcast. Energy storage is a big part of making renewables, uh, or sorry, wind and solar reliable. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And energy storage is huge. Are we going to do it through batteries? Are we going to do it through hydrogen? And that's something that we're definitely going to go into more future, um, more focusing on future episodes. So if you like that, definitely uh, follow us for more episodes on that type of, on those types of subject matters. But yeah, just talking about, talking about nuclear the energy, talking about how nuclear fits into the entire um, uh power generation spectrum how sometimes um we talked about how solar and wind has kind of been the the poster child for the renewable energy movement however we have many different types of renewable energies such as geothermal such as hydroelectric power which are oftentimes probably more used and they're actually more frequently used but they for whatever reason have kind of slipped to people's to the backs of people's minds and they're not talking about so much absolutely and, and um and uh, what, what else do we touch upon just uh, how complex this whole energy game is you know just how things are really more there's more to meets the eye than what we are told by our media superiors our scientific superiors but um you know what stick with us we're gonna go through the information we're trying to learn ourselves we're doing our best and yeah hopefully you guys getting some value out of this yeah and i want to also add if you are listening to this on apple podcasts and you like what you hear you know give us a review um that really helps us out 
in uh, in promoting the show. And uh, also check out our website. We have a, a website um, there. You can actually uh, find our email as well. And we're 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 going to be building that website out more um, and allow ways for you to provide us with feedback. Um, so check out our website. It's uh, www.firstprinciples.com. So it's firstprinciplespodcast.com. At first. Sorry. It's, what do you so say? Our, <laughs> the website is firstprinciplespodcast.com. That's firstprinciplespodcast.com. That's our site. You can find all our episodes, find a directory. You can find ways to contact us if you have some suggestions, some corrections, if you want to find um, our sources, if you want to like go into it yourself and like, hey, let me see what you guys are all about. We can send you our sources. So by all means, firstprinciplespodcast.com. Check it out. Check it out, and we'll catch you guys later. Peace. Peace.